Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm, I'm feeling positive. What are we talking about today? We're talking about gram-positive bacilli. So there, we've been doing gram-positive cocci, and the logic in our brains was saying either we stick with cocci or we stick with gram-positive. And so we've decided instead of going for the gram-negative cocci, we're going for the gram-positive bacilli. Yeah. Good revision, I think. Yeah. It's a bit of a funny group to talk about because there's not one... Like as opposed to the grand positive cocci, where there's staph and strep, the two big super families, there's not really anything that kind of stands out uh, in 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 this group. They're quite heterogeneous, yeah. Uh, with the exception, I think, of of mycobacteria, which are their own thing, and we're not going to talk about them in the next few episodes. We're going to save them for later. They deserve their own mini series, uh, and quite a lot of these are of marginal importance to the everyday clinician, but of the utmost importance to the everyday microbiologist because you spend a lot of time trying to identify these and parse them out from each other. Mm. And they're full of organisms that historically have been very important, but because of advances in modern medicine, hygiene, etc., have become, in our part of the world, very unusual. Uh, yeah. pathogens some of them which is great yeah they're also victims to vaccination a little bit so you know we've now got vaccines against some of them which means that they're no longer uh, a significant issue uh, for most people yeah vaccines are the best uh, one thing to caveat our discussion of gram-positive bacilli before we start is that we're going to be talking about aerobic gram-positive bacilli mm. so we're not going to be talking about anaerobes which there's quite a few gram-positive bacilli which are anaerobes, but we're not talking about them today. We're just focusing on the aerobic. So in terms of classification, like I say, they, these are quite heterogeneous as a group of, of organisms. Here's how I divide them. I divide them into non-branching gram-positive bacilli, which is the genesis Bacillus carinobacterium listeria lactobacillus and erysipelothrix, branching gram-positive bacilli, which are the genesis nocardia and actinomyces, and mycobacteria, which is its own thing, as, as we've said, uh, and is so important in human disease that we'll talk about it separately later on. But today, we're going to talk about the bacillus genus, which sets up a recurring trend of the gram-positive bacilli, where there are two main species you have to worry about, one of which causes fairly indolent uh, disease and the other one of which uh, will kill you <laughs> pretty <laughs> uh, pretty quickly if you get it. Uh, so the bacillus genus, Callum, what are the two big hitters? So you may have heard of something called anthrax. I think that's generally within medics and the general population's knowledge, mainly from its <coughs> biological warfare applications. So Bacillus anthracis is the causative organism of anthrax. 
And then the other big one for human disease is Bacillus cereus. So yes, Bacillus anthracis and Bacillus cereus, they're the two big ones that we're going to talk about today. There are hundreds of others, uh, Pumilus, Lycaniformis, these very uncommonly cause uh, disease in humans. So we'll concentrate on these these two uh, species for the rest of the talk. Okay, so where do we get these organisms? So Bacillus species, or this Bacillus genus in general, uh, are ubiquitous within the environment. So these are organisms that are found in water, soil, plants, uh, found on animals, and uh, the, uh, so the two specific ones, so anthracis, uh, is found typically on uh, animals. This is a zoonotic illness in humans, so particularly in animal uh, hides in uh, tropical zones, um, and it can sp- uh, sporulate, so it's found in the soil in that form. And then Bacillus cereus is found generally on uh, consumable plants, so rice, uh, dairy, veg, uh, and it's associated with food poisoning. Yeah, and and therefore the um, kind of people that get infected with these uh, uh, conditions uh, now thinking a bit more about kind of anthrax are the kind of people that come into contact with. Uh, the spores of the organism. So injecting drug users, using unsterilized uh, needles, uh, people that are likely to be exposed to animals, so farmers, uh, fisher people, uh, veterinarians, and laboratory workers mm. uh, in particular. And a slightly more, and, and more recently, there have been cases of exposure, particularly to anthrax with postal workers uh, when spores were, were sent in the mail. Um, that's not happened very often, though. I mean, don't get us wrong, anthrax is is out there. It's just not present in sufficient amounts to cause disease in humans normally. It has to be, you know, concentrated. You have to get, have to get a concentrated dose either by prolonged exposure um, or, or, or you're able to compromise or something like that. Um, there was actually an anthrax outbreak in Scotland in injecting drug users in, uh, I think, was it 2014, Callum? Yeah, it was... It was yeah. in west of Scotland generally, and there was a lot of yeah. alerts about it. And I think that was to do with a contaminated batch of yeah of, of, of heroin that got into the uh, supply, and a few uh, people died from it. Actually, injectional anthrax is not to be messed with. Yeah, uh, but let's go back for a minute and talk about the non-anthrax diseases that you can get. Talking about Bacillus cereus first, like we say, this is on contaminated foodstuffs, and it's it's ingested. The classic. MRCP part one or part two question is that uh, somebody eats a Chinese takeaway meal containing rice and then uh, starts vomiting and having diarrhea and then they present in the emergency department or the acute medical unit and actually they look okay and they want to go home. What was the likely cost of organism? And the answer is bacillus cereus because although the rice has been uh, cooked, maybe it was undercooked, uh, something has happened so that the um, spores have not been destroyed and uh, the bacillus area spores are quite hardy even if they're not destroyed the toxin hasn't been uh, destroyed and then that produces initially a mesis usually an onset between one and six hours after uh, consuming the uh, affected material followed by diarrheal episodes between eight and 16 hours roughly and usually all of this is resolved by 24 hours the patients don't need antibiotics usually they um, uh, might need a little bit of fluid rehydration, but actually quite a lot of the time this cell settles. 
So you mentioned a spore there. Spores essentially a dormant state of of bacteria which uh, can survive for a very prolonged period in the environment and is resistant to desiccation, so breakdown by things like heat and uh, moisture or dryness. Um, so it's just a state where the bacteria is not dividing and it is very hardy. Yeah, and that's that's a feature of several bacterial genesis, but Bacillus uh, is one of them as well. Let's talk about anthrax. What does the word anthrax mean? Well, I think it just means a disease called by Bacillus anthracis. I don't think it means anything. It's from Greek, which means uh, a coal or carbuncle. Um, so it's in reference to this sort of skin. The Eshar. The Eshar, yeah. the skin, skin lesion that you get. Okay. Uh, so it's named for, for what it um, is that it causes most commonly. So Bacillus anthrax is um, an organism that we all worry about because it's got high... It's a very virulent organism, and it does this. Uh, its pathogenesis is mediated by some virulence factors. One, it's got a, a capsule around the organism, which makes it um, more difficult to get rid to rid of and uh, is more survivable, and then can form into spores or endospores, which are um, even more resistant, can survive in the environment. Then it produces several toxins, so uh, edema toxin. Um, so again, another good name name for what it does. It causes severe edema, and it does this by increasing cyclic AMP in cells. The other factor that it produces the other toxin is lethal factor. Uh, this increases TNF-alpha and cytokines. It causes this sort of over-response of the immune system. And uh, again, it's called lethal toxin or lethal factor because... Well, it kills the cell. That's what it does. Yeah, so it's, it's the, the cells go haywire trying to produce all these cytokines and TNF-alpha and, and all these signals, and the cell burns out and dies. Okay. Uh, yeah, and fact, gets its energy from breaking down hemoglobin, and so it's in its best interest to, to be in the bloodstream and in, the, in tissue. If it's in tissue, then it wants to get at blood, so breaking down uh, tissue to, to get to blood cells to get hemoglobin makes a lot of sense. And then the final thing it has is protective antigen. So the clinical syndrome, so as the name would suggest, 95% of the time when you're seeing anthrax globally, and it is endemic or hyperendemic, particularly in areas of, of sub-Saharan Africa and tropi- other tropical areas, is uh, cutaneous. So over about 1 to 12 days after exposure, you develop a itchy papule, so a small raised red area, uh, which can then become bullous, so a large blister. Then you can go in to develop an eschar, which is black. So an eschar is like a basically like a skin scab, um, but it's got quite a classic mm-hmm. appearance. Um, and then this typically resolve over one to two weeks. Now, in these cases, you know, I, I imagine that the majority of these are fairly self-limiting in terms of where where people are getting this and perhaps lack of access to healthcare. And there's certainly quite a lot of infections in animals that wouldn't be recognized or treated and mm-hmm. uh, there are other things like vaccines which can reduce your risk but uh this isn't the word this is the the most common and the obviously it's still serious but the least of your version of anthrax and there's a couple of other causes yeah. which are very unusual but just for the record we would treat it if we came across it in the uk uh, we wouldn't ignore it well yeah um but like ham says in most bits of the world People get cutaneous anthrax and it self-resolves. Yeah. Historically in the UK, the classic presentation was like dockyard workers. So mm. um, if you were carrying like, you know, imported animal skins, 
um, you could have swung them over your shoulder if you're walking the dark docks in Liverpool was one that was always talked about in textbooks and then you would get this blackish on your shoulder. Hmm. Um, so other presentations, so gastrointestinal, so somehow you've ingested uh, anthrax, anthrax spores. Yeah, in food stuff. Uh, in food usually. stuff or, you know, you've been exposed in some way. Uh, now, this is very severe. So essentially you get this necrotic ulcer, but uh, instead of it being external, it's internal. And uh, it's obviously much more difficult to diagnose because you don't have this classic appearance on the skin. And uh, it makes people really sick in a way that I don't think many people, unless it was endemic, would think anthrax immediately. So typically a fever, malaise, syncope, nausea and vomiting. Uh, and then you can get... Oh, abdominal pain, potentially just the distension, peritonism, shock, potentially mm. death. Yeah. Um, this is less than 5% of cases. It's, it's, it's rare, yeah. but worth other presentations. So inhalational. So the classic here would be, say, you've got a drum. Uh, it's made of stretched animal skin, and there was anthrax spores on the animal skin. You go and beat your new drum. Uh, you breathe in the spores. And you were very unwell. So onset is less than seven days. Very high mortality, quoted at 66%. Uh, and initially you get this sort of flu-like syndrome. Um, and then you, this progresses to a necrotic multilobar lower respiratory tract infection, pneumonia. Uh, and then the final, you know, one of the complications can be a hemorrhagic mediastinitis. Uh, so inflammation of the structures sort of in the middle of the chest. Yeah. Um, so anthrax uh, doesn't know what's meant to stick to the lungs. It doesn't know where it is. It still thinks it's in a cow or uh, a goat or whatever. And so it directly invades uh, from the lung tissue through the lymph nodes into the mediastinum. Um, and so one of the things that you can look for on a chest X-ray is mediastinal widening, indicating that there's kind of involvement of mediastinal structures. Yeah, and then that's... the last one can happen as a complication of any of the first three that you've you've been talking about, Cal, which is meningitis. And anthrax meningitis is almost a death sentence. So the mortality is about 94%. Uh, that's with treatment. They usually present with a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Like I say, it's uh, by the time that it's actually crossed the blood-brain barrier, it's almost always game over and these people are deathly sick. For what it's worth, you can usually grow the bug uh, from CSF. As sensitivity is about 80%. And quite a lot of the time you can see it on initial microscopy. The other thing worth considering is injectional anthrax. So this is distinct from cutaneous anthrax in that the mechanism of infection is instead of being cutaneous and invading from there, you are inoculating uh, deeper. So if you're in, trying to inject into a vein, potentially ar around that into the deeper tissue. And so it's harder to diagnose. You don't get the same SR, you don't get the same typical appearances. And I think that ties in with the difficulty diagnosing all the non-cutaneous anthrax uh, conditions, because usually you're just looking for an SR. The injection also, the, the, as Jane mentioned, there was an outbreak of anthrax in Scotland uh, several years ago associated with drug, drug use and at that point this was the sort of syndrome that was described uh, patients presented with prodromal symptoms uh, they can be vague so at the injection site there might be excessive bruising 
and uh, this can develop into significant edema, so very edematous, painful legs, which are out of keeping with how these patients would typically present, um, and then develop into severe soft tissue infections. And the this can be really problematic to treat. Um, so in injecting drug use, there's lots of other causes, causative organisms for severe inf infections. So things like clostridial infections, clostridial myonecrosis, um, and various species can, can undo that and um, uh, at the more extreme end, uh, necrotizing soft, skin soft tissue infections, which we discussed before. Uh, and even with, with the ideal treatment, there's a, there's a high mortality rate for these injectional anaphraxis as opposed to the cutaneous, which is much less severe. So we'll just go now and talk about the laboratory characteristics of uh, bacillus uh, species, in particular bacillus anaphraxis, because that's the problematic one in the lab. Although bacillus cereus, we are talking about in the context of human infection, generally speaking, that is quite self-limiting and you're not going to be sending samples. And it's not something that we will routinely be looking for uh, with that much interest. Uh, because it's so self-limiting. Um, so rarely that organism can cause more unusual infections as a consequence of a patient being immunocompromised. Uh, so examples would be endophthalmitis, keratitis, central nervous system infections, but that is very, very unusual. Now, anthraxis uh, is a very, there's several reasons why it's important in laboratory. One is the patient who's got this may well be quite unwell and you're trying to get a pathogen. But the other reason you worry about it from the lab is that it is a lab pathogen. So because it has this ability to perform spores, it can be a hazard to the laboratory staff. And historically, before we had a good understanding of this, this, this would be, as many other microorganisms were for early days of microbiology, there's lab staff would be a high risk, uh, be as a, as a risky profession. Thankfully, now we know uh, better and as soon as this organism is suspected it's put into the sort of higher risk part of the laboratory so how do we ID it so with any stuff in the lab with an organism first you're going to be looking at gram stain whether that's on the uh, direct on a sample or if it's on a positive blood culture or later on down a cult from a colony so the, the typical gram stain appearance of bacillus anthraxis is a gram positive bacillus and it's quite the typical appearance for this one in particular, as opposed to other bacillus uh, species, is its boxcar. So it's quite a square-edged uh, rectangle, as opposed to more oval. And it has an endospore visible, which is sort of, um, it's more refractory to light. So it looks like a sort of circle within that uh, rectangle. But that gram stain alone is not going to be enough to say this is or is not anthraxis. And as Jay mentioned earlier on, they're in chains, generally. You'll usually grow this well on blood agar, which is usually red, and most bacillus species will be hemolytic, which we talked about in the streptococci and staphylococci. Um, so they usually exhibit beta hemolysis, so they break down and the agar goes clear. And that makes sense with uh, bacillus um, getting their energy from breaking down hemoglobin. Now, some of the bacillus species are non-hemolytic, and an example of that is bacillus anthraxis. So that's one of your first alarm bells. If someone says they've got a bacillus species or gram-positive bacillus on a gram, and then you get a blood agar, and you've got a colony which is non-hemolytic, you start thinking about it. Uh, the colonies are usually quite white for anthraxis and generally a bit clearer for non-anthraxis. And they have a kind of 
typical morphology where you, um, if you're using a loop to move your organism around the plate, they sort of push, push up. Now there's other tests that you can do. So there's certainly biochemical tests. So things like oxidase and other tests, which can be used to differentiate uh, anaphrasis and uh, non-anaphrasis species, which is the important the differentiator. Whether they're motile as well, so anaphrasis is typically non-motile, uh, suspend it in liquid and see if it moves. There's a test called McFadden's test, which is to do with fixing cells in methylene blue, waiting for the organism to produce a capsule which stains purple-pink, and that's meant to be another differentiator. Modern techniques, so the Molditoff, which we talked about briefly before, mass spectrometry method can differentiate bacillus species. Uh, that said, if you really think it's anaphrasis, then you're going to be doing it in your high-risk lab, the category-free lab, and most labs won't have that equipment in that part of the lab, so you're kind of limited. The definitive test is to send it off to a reference laboratory down in London, and then what they'll do is they'll take, do a PCR test, a polymerase chain reaction, and that will look for the genes that are associated with anaphrasis, and they can tell you quite quickly whether it is or is not. And uh, just for a sort of a case, so recently we had a case, it was a injection drug user who'd come in with a quite typical history. They'd, they'd injected and then they'd got pain and swelling associated with fever. They were quite unwell. They were on some antibiotics, flucoxacillin, gentamicin, metronidazole, which is our sort of local protocol for these sort of patients. And then they had a positive blood culture, which in the series looked like a gram negative. And then the next day reviewing the gram, it actually was a gram positive bacillus. And it was quite late on a Sunday and it made me feel a bit uneasy. And then going to the laboratory on the agar, there was a non-hemolytic colony on the plate. So let's say there was a little bit of concern because we, we have seen these before and the patient had a clinical syndrome. So they had a very swollen leg. They were very unwell, they had a little pain. And so the way that we differentiated this from Infraxis was the gram scene wasn't typical. Uh, the colony wasn't white. And although it was non-hemolytic, we did some other biochemical tests, which didn't agree. And the, it had already been through Molditoff, and that had suggested it was something called Bacillus circulans, which was not one we talked about earlier on, but interestingly is a non-hemolytic Bacillus species. And is, uh, it's got some quite a lot of laboratory similarities to Anfrasis. And so the definitive investigation was done during the week where we got the PCR test back from the reference lab, which said it wasn't. Uh, but in the interim, the patient was isolated in the side room because this is a risk to, to other patients and antibiotics were changed slightly just in case. So I guess in summary from the laboratory is it can be quite difficult to differentiate, something to be aware of because you want to get the treatment right for your patients, but also from infection control, public health perspective, especially if they're inpatient and also your risk to the staff that are looking at the samples in the laboratory. So lots of reasons to be very careful. And then finally, we'll just talk a little bit about the, the treatment of, of anthrax. It sort of depends on where the source is. There is, for patients that are unwell and you identify this uh, immunoglobulin that can be given, which the idea of that is to essentially inactivate the toxins, which are what are making people very unwell. As of most of these toxins are very expensive, they're held in limited sites, and it can be difficult to access. So one of these, you know, you, you wouldn't start that without discussion with a, with a specialist unit nationally. For the skin, so 
essentially you're looking at either ciprofloxacin as our fluoroquinolone first-line choice or doxycycline as another good antibiotic. Uh, and you're also aiming to debride the wound, so trying to get any organisms spores out and try and get some material to try and culture and confirm the organism. With skin, generally it's a clinical diagnosis and you're confirming it in the laboratory. In contrast, the other presentations are generally going to be laboratory confirmed first and then you'll go back unless you're particularly astute and you've got reason to suspect it. Perhaps there's an outbreak ongoing. If you've got more systemic, then superfloxacin is first-line treatment again. And generally speaking, you would add in either clindamycin or linezolid. And the idea of that is that they have lower toxin production. If there's involvement of the central nervous system, then the patient is very unwell and the recommendation is to add medropenem or another carbapenem, uh, which penetrates into the CNS. The other angle on treatment is that you, if you're exposed, so say you've got a patient that comes in and unwell and laterally is identified that they had anthrax, you would offer a post-exposure prophylaxis to, to sort of close contacts that might include healthcare workers. And the typical example would be your anesthetist and you've intubated someone turned out later to have anthrax. So you would give those patients ciprofloxacin or, or doxycycline. And the other context for that would be, say, so this is, uh, we've talked about this briefly, but biological warfare, because the spores are so robust in the environment, they are and have been developed by several governments historically as used in biological warfare and have been used in terrorist attacks. So um, if there's been deliberate release, then you would give patients that were exposed, post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, and the other intervention you would take is vaccination. So there's uh, many vaccinations worldwide for animals uh, and also for, for human use. So you'd, you'd vaccinate people that have been exposed. So we've got post-exposure prophylaxis with uh, antibiotics or uh, post-exposure vaccination. And um, you can consider uh, the best uh, treatment is prevention. So who would you vaccinate before uh, they get exposed? Now, historically, occupations, so we talked about this briefly, but occupations that were potentially at risk of exposure to anthrax would be those who worked closely with animals, particularly animals imported from abroad. Now, there's many controls, certificates required, sterilization of uh, animal products, essentially, before things come into the UK now. So this shouldn't happen. So it's deemed very low risk. But guidance suggests that in the in the green book, which is the government vaccination recommendations high risk uh, workers might include farm workers uh, vets zookeepers abattoir workers construction workers the microbiology laboratory staff those working in industries handling animal products and those involved in the storage and distribution of material derived from any of the above none of these groups will probably receive vaccination with this now um, other potential risks so those work handling males so this was certainly typical uh, very well recognized after the, the the mailing of anthrax in the US. Laboratory workers that work with anthrax in the high containment facilities, so if you're working with it, first responders that respond to confirmed anthrax, so if it's sort of, you already know that it's there. Uh, military personnel, so you're working in countries where it's endemic, and also environmental decontamination teams. So people that have a reasonable chance of those are sort of uh, potential intermittent risk. So that's us. Uh, started on our little journey through gram-positive bacilli that are aerobic. So we're getting real specific now. And 
We've talked about Bacillus species, and the two ones that we really need to think about are Bacillus anthracis and Bacillus cirrus. So next time we'll be continuing uh, this journey and we'll be talking about potentially some of the other gram-positive bacilli. Thanks for listening. Comments, feedback, criticisms and corrections. If you could send those to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. I've been Callum. Jim had to leave. See you next time.